words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. Uh, later on this morning, we're going to have our SPCA Animal Blessing Service, a service where we celebrate the SPCA and our pets, but also this crazy little saint from Assisi who turned the church and the world on, of his time on its head, Francis of Assisi. Today his memory is kept alive by half a million professed followers around the world in the Roman Catholic, Anglican, Lutheran and several other churches. People who continue to live among the poor and dispossessed in some of the poorest countries and through the work of Franciscan International at the United Nations ensure that the voice of the poor and the dispossessed is heard at the highest places. John Quigley, who was a past executive director of Franciscan International and a Franciscan writer, offers these thoughts about Francis. For the past 800 years, other men and women, inspired by the simple genius and freshness of Francis and Claire, have been developing and popularizing the original Franciscan revelation. This continual updating has had a profound humanizing effect within Christianity, Western civilization, and other cultures. It is not easy to put into a capsule the spirit and gifts of Franciscan thinking. Its hallmarks are simplicity, reverence, fraternity, ecumenism, ecology, interdependence, and dialogue. Its motto and salutation is peace and all good. He goes on to say, Francis knew that we share this earth, our loves and our work, with all of God's creatures, our brothers and sisters. Unlike the monastic life, which strove to, to domesticate nature and to bring it under control, Francis expected to live lightly on the earth, a burden neither to the earth nor to those who fed and clothed him. Just over a year ago, I sat in a meeting with another Franciscan, it was a Franciscan meeting, the Reverend Canon Doctor, very official sounding, Jeff Golliher, who at that point was still the advisor for the environment, climate change and sustainable communities at the Anglican Communion Office at the United Nations. And he talked about the then very recently published emergency report from the IPCC, which talked about how we need... Now this report uh, was an emergency report. It wasn't part of their regular schedule of reports. They knew that they couldn't wait for their normal schedule. And in that report, they said that we need to halve our greenhouse gas emissions by 2030, and we need to go back to our pre-industrial revolution levels by 2050. If we don't, we face unthinkable consequences. Well, more of the same of what we're experiencing now, but on a much grander, destructive level, rising sea levels, more frequent and more damaging storms, far worse floods, droughts, fires that not only move fast and destroy vast areas of bush and trees, but also burn all the seeds that normally would then regenerate. That's already happening. Parts of the world becoming uninhabitable. Hundreds of millions, if not billions, forced to move. And worst of all, 
the unraveling of the web of life on which all life depends, all of which I've talked about before. If we're able to achieve this, climate change will still be upon us. It's here. It's a reality. It's here to stay. By doing this, by halving our emissions and eventually getting rid of them, all we're hoping to do is to limit the damaging effects. It's clear that unlike St Francis, we have not lived lightly on the earth. We have been a burden to the earth and to those who feed and clothe us. And the poorest and all of God's creatures, our brothers and sisters, have been paying a heavy price and will pay an even heavier price. In the art of letting go, another Franciscan writer, Richard Raw, suggests that Francis lived a life of penance. We often think of penance as some kind of action or punishment we inflict on ourselves or is inflicted on us by someone else as an outward expression of our repentance for wrongdoing. Self-flagellation is probably a worst example. Saying lots of Hail Marys and Lord's Prayers, giving up something is a better example. And so it goes. But for Francis, according to Richard Raw, penance was making room for God. And that feels like something very different. What does that look like? When Francis met a leper on the road, the Via Francesca, he made room for God to speak to him through the leper, and everything changed. Two weeks ago, about 70 people gathered at the Wesley Methodist Hall, and we watched the Sultan and the Saint about an event that happened 800 years ago when Francis joined the Fifth Crusade not because he supported the goals of the crusade, but to preach against it. It was the only time he ever preached against anything. That The crusades were the only thing that Francis disagreed with the Pope and preached against what the Pope taught. He walked across the lines to the Muslim camp, seeking an audience with the Sultan Malik al-Kamil. He was welcomed in because they thought he was an emissary, uh, replying to the peace terms that the Sultan had offered the Crusaders. The Sultan Francis was there to convert him. Well, that was a bit disappointing, but uh, eventually the two men spent time with each other. It's thought that Francis spent up to two weeks in the Muslim camp. And during that time, well, he made room for God to speak through him, through them as they stopped for prayer five times a day, as he listened to what the Sultan had to say about his faith, and the Sultan was very well educated and a man of deep faith. Francis eventually made room to see the Sultan as his brother. And as we saw in that movie, everything changed. He changed his rule from that his brother should go to the Muslim countries to convert, to they were to go to the Muslim countries to serve their Muslim brothers and sisters. It's thought that one of his last things that he wrote, which is in praise of God, was based on the hundred names of God that comes out of Islam. And he was given a corn which he used to summon his brothers to prayer, which you can still see 
in the Basilica of St. Francis in Assisi. When we make room for God, amazing things can happen. Our help, pets also help us make room. Our pet, Muffy, makes, helps us make room all the time. Every mealtime, she encourages us to make room for her and to share. When we're sitting watching television, she'll help us make room for her by lying on top of us or pushing our legs off the leg rest. She helps us make room in our life, in my life, makes, helps me make room in my life for exercise and to enjoy this wonderful place we live in by encouraging me, especially at four o'clock, by jumping on me to take her for walks in parks and on the beach. And so it goes. That's what pets do. They help us make room for them and through that, like Francis, for others, for ourselves, for creation. They are an amazing gift. It's why we treasure them. But I wonder in the face of the climate crisis, as she helps me make room, am I able to make room for all of God's creatures to change my ways so that they do not have to suffer the effects of my lifestyle? And as she helps me make room to enjoy God's creation, am I able to change my ways so that this creation does not have to suffer the effects of my lifestyle? So that this world can flourish and thrive. This morning we had another story about making room. It's the story of Jesus and the ten lepers. These people lived in the in-between land between Samaria and Galilee, where both Jew and Samaritan lived together. Now in this story there were ten lepers, and the old divisions were put aside, the divisions of Samaritan and Jew, and they had a common status of outcast. And when they see Jesus, they beg Jesus to be healed. And when he sees them, it's a really interesting term. He doesn't hear them. He sees them. He tells them to do what the Mosaic law prescribed, to go to the priests to be declared clean. Although they would have gone to different priests because it turns out that one of them was a Samaritan. And while they were walking, they were healed. One returns praising God. We often read the stories about we need to give thanks, but actually the point of the story was that the Samaritan praised God. The giving thanks bit was a very little piece in the middle of the major piece of him giving thanks to God. He praised God as he came to Jesus, and then Jesus talks about how he praised God. The Samaritans appear in Luke's Gospel more than any of the other Gospels, probably as, in Luke's Gospel as much as the other three combined. There are three stories. The first is the story of the Samaritan town that will not offer hospitality to Jesus and his disciples because they are not going to stay there. They are going on to Jerusalem. And so one of the disciples, or some of the disciples, asked Jesus if they can bring down fire and destruction on that town, which is a very neat way of Luke showing just how much animosity existed between the Samaritans and the Jews. 
In some of the commentaries, they talk about the Samaritans and the Gentiles being in the same boat. Mm -mm. The Gentiles, both Samaritans and the Jews, kind of tolerated. They weren't part of their group. But they were, as long as they kind of minded their own business, they didn't really mind them. I mean, it would be better if they weren't there, but they'd been there by that point for 300 years. It was hard to get too stressed about them. But Samaritans and Jews, well, they had wars. They hated each other. Really, really, really hated each other. They were enemies of long standing. So that's, that's a nice story to just remind people of that. And then we have the parable of the Good Samaritan, told in response to the question, Who is my neighbour? Luke uses a Samaritan to teach about Torah. So both, Gentile, both um, Samaritans and Jews follow Torah. That is this, the common scripture between them. So all the other stuff, that only belongs to the Jews. Samaritans, Torah only. And so, which is the first five books. So the law that kind of restricts the <coughs> Jewish response to the man on the highway also restricts the Samaritan. But he breaks Torah and acts as a neighbour. In that story, Jesus is using a hated enemy to teach his Jewish audience about what it means to love your neighbour as yourself. He is using a Samaritan to help them make room, make room for all the wrong people to be their neighbour and to offer love to those neighbours. But harder still, to receive love from those neighbours. Or as one of the commentaries that I read put it, in Luke 6 he talks about loving your enemy and then he goes to love your worst enemy and, th and then in this story see your worst enemy not as an enemy but as an agent of God's love. Jesus was inviting his hearers to make room. To make room for God to speak through the enemy. Just as Francis found that he had to make room for God to speak through his enemy, the Sultan. And today, in today's story, again, the Samaritan is the enemy. He is not in your camp. He is not one of us. He is one of the hated ones over there. And in today's story... Jesus says, see your worst enemy not as an enemy, but as the one who teaches us how one might respond to God's love. Your worst enemy is teaching you about how you should respond to God, to God's goodness, to God's grace. That's exactly what Francis discovered when he met the Sultan that his worst enemy taught him about how to respond to God. So who are our worst enemies? Who are the people that we struggle with the most? And how might they teach us about God?